Welcome to CTN, CIO Talk Network, with your host, Sanjo Gall. All comments, views, and opinions expressed on this show are strictly those of the host, guests, and callers. Now, here's Sanjo Gall. Hello and uh, welcome to this segment on CTN. To learn more, please visit CIOTalkNetwork.com. And the topic for today is how the public sector is utilizing AI. So within the private sector, we have seen that AI has proven to have shown so many benefits and people are using in different ways. And it is also giving them a competitive advantage. But how is that being applied within the public sector? What are the top benefits realized? And has it made an impact on how the government has been able to respond to the current coronavirus pandemic? To discuss this, I have invited uh, Suzette Kent, Federal's Chief Information Officer, U.S. Office of Management and Budget. Hey, Suzette, how are you? Hey, I'm good. Great, great to have you. And we have Dorothy Aronson, who's the Chief Information Officer with National Science Foundation. Hey, Dorothy, how's life for you? So far, so good. Very good, very good. So, Suzette, let's start with you. So, let's talk about the kind of examples you can share, maybe some examples you can share about how AI has been implemented within the federal government and what type of impact, or in fact, we can say, has it had an impact on how the U.S. has responded to coronavirus? If the answer is yes, in what ways? Okay, well, again, thanks for having uh, Dorothy and I, and I'm going to share some of the things that are that are kind of brought across multiple federal agencies, and um, I, I always enjoy working with Dorothy because she has perspectives of actually directing this activity every day for the National Science Foundation, as well as so many of the things that the National Science Foundation does um, to support the advancement of AI um, in both public and private sector. But what's going on actually covers a broad spectrum. You know, there are some really advanced, sophisticated uses, like we see at Department of Energy and our national labs, the DOD and NASA, and our federally funded research and development centers. And there's other areas where, you know, there's, there's pilot efforts going on. And some of the types of things that we're doing, um, as you might expect, uh, of course, we, we're very anxious to use and have uh, been seeing good results in using um, AI for a complex analysis. So the Social Security Administration, you know, the, the, the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office, the SEC, FDA, um, are able to deploy um, it uses or, or use cases for AI and complex analysis. We're very familiar, public's very familiar with the weather models and things that you know, Commerce and NOAA under the Department of Commerce use training simulations at the Department of Labor and the DOD, uh, lots of investment in um, autonomous vehicle operations, whether that's NASA, DOD, transportation, or the, post, or the U.S. Post Office. And interesting things in how we look at our Earth and identify, you know, what the, the land cover and surface of different areas. So I'm covering a broad spectrum, but you mentioned at the start one of the really important ones, the healthcare space right now. In uh, that space, we AI has been in deployment for things with early diagnosis and broader use of data to identify linkages with different diseases or different treatment protocols. Um, 
But in response to the coronavirus, because agencies did have tools and they've been investing in understanding uh, the fidelity of various data sets and sharing protocols and some of these uh, more complex set of activities, we've been able to link uh, public and private data sets in a way that has never occurred before. The uh, HHS shared some things very publicly about Project Protect, how they've been able to take almost 200 data sets and put those together to be able to move more quickly with analysis. Um, The United States actually made available its supercomputers that are in our national labs for research treatments and cures and vaccines. And then they're using AI as well to go over thousands, um, tens of thousands actually, of scholarly publications and looking for information on coronavirus to see what we can learn and how we can move more quickly. So that's a, that is a high-level kind of drive across. It has been a priority, a priority of the administration. You know, the president signed executive orders about maintaining American leadership and artificial intelligence um, for our nation. And we are taking that to heart in the federal agencies. And I know, Dorothy, uh, the one, one area I didn't touch on um, is the things that we're doing kind of in our workforce and that we are uh, where we are both using it for workforce and human capital type things um, as well as building our skills. And I know that uh, Dorothy has some interesting things to share on that. Well, thank you, Suzette. Um, thank you for having me. Um, yeah, I've gotten interested uh, in using artificial intelligence to help advance uh, and modernize the federal workforce, the incumbent federal workforce, especially because it's very hard to uh, hire people, lots of people with um, modern technology skills, um, but also that's not necessarily the best way for the federal government to uh, satisfy the need to have people with these skills because um, federal workers have so much knowledge about the way the government works and uh, about intricacies of the data that, that the federal government already has, that bringing in someone with a technology skill who doesn't understand the government and doesn't understand our legacy data, uh, uh, that person takes as much training uh, as a person uh, uh, in the federal government would need to acquire the skills. So we were, we've been experimenting for a little bit about using artificial intelligence to match of federal workers with potential jobs that careers that would exist in the future and um, help that would help them give them opportunities to see what's going on in the future, select potential jobs, um, maybe maybe careers or jobs that don't even exist yet, and then uh, see if we could give them time to select their future career. And once we figure out what their job is, then possibly. Uh, feed them training opportunities or detail opportunities and and um, classwork, et cetera, to help get them to uh, achieve their future objectives. Uh, so those are the the workforce related um, uh, um, activities that I've been working on uh, with respect to COVID. You know the um, the National Science Foundation, the research funds uh, basic research. And uh, the White House uh, Office of Science Technology Policy uh, very early on released um, extensive data sets 
of machine-readable COVID virus literature, which we've been able to use to help link our NSF research to, um, uh, to COVID uh, activities. And so we've been very excited about that and the, the very quick uh, release of that information and um, our ability to respond quickly and use it has been wonderful. So, Suzette, we know, like, while private sector is all gung-ho about AI, and, of course, uh, public sector is catching on as well, but AI itself is also morphing. It's evolving. So when you go about running it or using it as a foundation for running the government activities, how is that uh, how is that maturing? Or are you thinking that, okay, I will implement AI to the stage where it is and we will evolve as it goes? Or do you have a, like a, a set standard that to this degree we are going to use AI because we know for sure it works the way it is supposed to work? Because in AI, you are removing the human intervention. Um, let, 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 me, let me answer that kind of in the terms of, of the things that we're currently doing, you know, across the federal government, um, there are, when you, when you think about uh, the wide spectrum of what we can do with AI, there are, there are requirements that we have spent a lot of time, you know, because, you know, you mentioned um, the private sector using AI for, uh, you know, profit to drive product services for competitive. In the federal government, agencies are using AI to serve mission. So to do that, we not only have to have the tools, the true technical tools, which is you know, the, the actual you know, software capability, a mature and curated data capability, in some cases advanced computational capabilities, and individuals who know exactly what they're trying to solve for before they put all those things together. So we've been developing, you know, principles and processes and the protocols that ensure when we believe this is the right tool for that mission, we are using AI in a way that aligns with law, with American values. It pulls in all those components of, you know, people, computational resources, technical capability, that we have clarity of purpose, and that we have ways that we can confirm accuracy and reliability and the security. And security is really important in our government uses. And that the operational outcomes are understandable, transparent, and properly monitored. Those are some critical steps not yet to ensure that when we actually put something, you know, into a mission-serving or, or, or mission-support function in the government, that we're using it in a responsible way. So some of the things that we're doing are around building communities of practice and defining standards for the things that I just talked about. For example, NIST, um, who works on uh, standards, is developing what does explainability mean? When we say I can explain an AI algorithm, what does that really mean? And how you know, do I do that? And we're also, we have a, a very large federal data strategy set of activities so that we are refining, curating, and making available in a usable manner the type of data sets that we need to solve complex questions. You know, Dorothy talked a little bit about different types of workforce investments, but we're also looking at ways that we 
empower our teams. And some of your listeners may have seen, you know, the DOD, uh, Department of Energy, and the VA, they all have focused teams. So join our official intelligence center. Um, the DOE has an artificial um, intelligence and technology office. The VA has an artificial um, intelligence institute. And in those agencies, they're collecting the people that are doing this work to be very focused, to apply those principles that I just walked through, um, and to address the challenges and gaps about how we go from pilots experimentation to broader scale um, and enhanced use. And we have a lot, we know we have a lot of work to do to continue to evolve the policies um, around both use of the tools themselves as well as data. Um, many of the agencies are defining governance structures and frameworks uh, for how that would work. And we are assessing, you know, our own capabilities in between agencies so that what we are creating, we have a path to sustaining. Dorothy, what so, would you add? And what, what are the things that, you know, that, uh, that you're having to, to, to do in NSS that are specific to some of those areas? You know, uh, Suzette, the, the things that we think about mostly, well, first off, I'm very experimental in my use of AI. So I, I, what I've seen uh, at the government level is, every, is, is very important, serious consideration of policy and safety and data privacy. Um, the experiments that I run, we take very low, low risk. Um, so... For example, if we if we are implementing a tool, the use of that tool would be optional. We will put out uh, disclaimers and educate the people that are using them about the possible risk. We are still getting feedback from people, so um, that we are taking. I think that uh, I'm trying to just help learn and experiment with pitfalls and fear and fear feel out the customer base and see where uh, we can take uh, acceptable level of risk. You know, we'll never get to zero risk, but where uh, we can use the tools to help people proceed and do their jobs without uh, uh, inserting bias. Now, the the good news here is that AI has at least reached a point where people can use it. And Suzette, as you mentioned, that it's a mission that at least allows everyone to come on board and, and have a, the right intent, if you will. But then when you're trying to do so many uh, AI-related, uh, taking on so many AI-related initiatives and running them across entities and you're trying to collaborate, I'm sure there are some execution challenges, there are some resource gaps and constraints, and you have to deal with them. Let's take a quick break, listeners. When we come back, Suzette, why don't you help lay out what are those and how are you dealing with these execution challenges, resource gaps, and constraints? Please stay tuned, listeners. We'll be right back. 
Today, enterprise technology is both strategic and global. Each week on CTN CIO Talk Network, IT thought leaders from around the world share their experience with listeners as they discuss with Sunjog All how they are trimming costs and partnering with business to innovate and help IT become more competitive, better care for customers, and improve the corporate bottom line. If you want to keep up with IT thought leadership, listen to CTN CIO Talk Network with Sunjog All at CIO Talk Network. You are listening to CTN, CIO Talk Network, with Sunjog Gall. To learn more about our program, please visit CIOTalkNetwork.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back. So, Suzette, when we talk about execution challenges and resource gaps and constraints, those are the realities on the ground whenever you try to do something as pervasive and as deep and as wide within the government where you're trying to uh, run your AI activities and AI experiments. So what are they? What are you dealing with? Well, Tenjog, that government environment is um, very unique. Having spent time in both the private sector and the government side, um, again, a little bit because of the, the citizens that the, the federal government serves and the demands, there are, I'm not going to call it barriers, but I will say agencies are walking very carefully and making very uh, thoughtful decisions around policy and controls and oversight for places where they are using, uh, you know, targeting uh, AI. They're also being very specific uh, because we do have scarce resources right now. And when I say scarce, meaning mostly people, data sets that are ready, and in some cases, uh, you know, access to high-performance computing capabilities. But they're being very selective in the types of things that they focus on. So that kind of selection process, the... Uh, operational maturity, and there's a lot of discussion going on um, at the whole of government level as well as individual agencies about those activities. We're doing uh, things to build our own skill sets, as Dorothy noted, um, and, and we can look across every sector, and these are new sets of skills. And many times, you know, we're all looking for scarce resources um, in this space, so we are uh, we have started communities of practices that there's one shared between uh, GSA and, and the Office of the Federal CIO where we are collecting the best practices and things that have worked at one agency to go share with another agency so that we can build our skills faster. Um, we are making workforce investments from a you know peer play training perspective. It's very interesting in many of the AI cases, uh, particularly for mission support or anything where we're using AI in conjunction with a citizen serving function. We actually have to make changes to the business process as well. And and how that change works um, has been a new learning experience. But one part that is really important, and we're still evolving, is when you say transparent and explainable to constituents, how do we do that? 
and how do they want to consume you know that information and, and how do we make that you know clear and evident so I kind of ran the full gamut of 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 areas you know if it's something that's for an internal use that that may and you know AI for an internal purpose inside government may uh, have one path but those things that we are using for citizen services have another so we're working through those um, and learning and continuing to gauge with the private sector and their learnings and applications as well. So, Dorothy, but, when you look at yeah. the same type of challenge, you have an additional comment? Please go ahead. Yeah, I do. Um, I think that um, Suzette's, of course, right on. But, you know, one thing to add to that is that some of our our customers are extremely diverse and um, both internal to the federal government and external. And some people want more uh, AI faster, and other people want less AI slower. So our constituency, the the people that we're trying to um, engage, are so diverse, and and so implementation can is is a very tricky um, uh, situation for us. It's not as if we're just selling a product where people can choose to buy a different product. We need to be able to satisfy all of uh, all of our um, customers simultaneous, simultaneously. Now, um, so Dorothy, when we talk about the execution challenge, even you and uh, Suzette mentioned that there are certain inherent challenges in, in running such a big operation and, and using AI in it. But then when we talk about resource gaps and constraints, if someone were to sit outside and look at federal government, they'll say, what gaps, what constraints? Because you have it all. So could you point a finger on where truly the gaps are and constraints are? Well, we have the same gaps um, and constraints in our federal workforce that the whole um, that the whole planet has. So, you know, as technologies emerge very quickly, it's uh, virtually impossible to find enough cybersecurity experts and data scientists anywhere. So, the tools. What's happened is that the um, information technology tools have modernized much more quickly. Than the than um, and the demand for such tools, those things have emerged very rapidly, uh, much more rapidly than people can adopt and learn how to use them. Uh, more more quickly than policy could certainly emerge to support them. Well, and Tara, I'll, I'll add something. I want to add something to the way you asked the question. Um, and I was chuckling while you were asking it because. In some of the work that, you know, we will do with state and local governments or from other entities in the private sector, they will say, the federal government has the best data, you know, all the best data. And they're asking us, you oh, I, I, I want this data, so share this data, or you have that data. But there's still rules around how that data can be used. And there's privacy concerns. And when we collect data from citizens, we have a responsibility for how that data is used and and explaining to citizens how it will be used and making them informed of where and why. And it's sure that that's in alignment with, with the reason for which it's collected. So it may look like all the resources are out there, but, but, that, but there's still rules and processes to follow for use of that data. 
even to get agencies to share data between each other um, requires some very specific sets of protocol. The federal government has the leading high-performance compute capabilities, but to be able to use those, we have to re-architect applications, you know, and data in many cases uh, to, to achieve the outcomes that we want. That's real work, and that's work effort that has to be prioritized. And, you know, as, as Dorothy said, we're all fighting for the same resources, so the, the choice of which projects that we work on is really important because, as you said, there's a lot of demand out there, um, but we're both learning and managing the, the demand and trying to build more supply inside at the same time. You know, can, I'm going to add to that, too, because I think that, thank you, Suzette, because I think that you remind me that, you know, people want to look at, use artificial intelligence, for example, to mine data that's 50 years old. But that data, a lot of it isn't even in machine-readable format. So a lot, we have to perform our mission as a federal government. At the same time, we have to um, learn and modernize and move forward. So the people with the expertise who are performing the uh, functions of the federal government on a daily basis, that's, um, we're fully staffed doing that. To, we have to um, have some fat. In our uh, in our workforce, in order to both perform our our day to day operations and our normal operations, and to modernize, because modernizing takes an additional boost of energy. And um, we, it's the same with you know, so it's the same with any member of the workforce who wants to modernize their skills or upskill themselves. They have to take that. They have to also do that while they're performing their current uh, full time job. And with respect to data, I think that we are coming out with some wonderful uh, laws, the Data Act. The new laws that are coming out all have been doing so with the future in mind, with the, the notion that the data as we capture it needs to be, we need to consider that it's making it available as soon as we capture it and in a format that's readily available for um, machine-readable um, operations and things like that. But the but the amount of new data that we're collecting is small compared to the amount of old data that we've got. Hey, Sandra, so, you, asked, you asked for kind of stories and analysis and on this space, because it's really important, I'd, I'd like to share one with you. Um, one of the longest-running, most public, high-fidelity data sets the federal government has, um, and, you know, there's multiple AI tools that are used in conjunction is you know, our our weather data, you know, from NOAA, and there are very specific uh, components of the U.S. private sector who take that data, they use their own AI tools, and they create products and businesses, and that stimulates the economy. And so Dorothy's point about some of the laws and approach that we're taking as we do not only new work in AI, but as we curate this data, is with that same both inward and outward vision. Our responsibility inside the federal government is absolute to the missions that we serve, but part of those missions is to stimulate, whether it's national economy, homeland security, research and development, through data that can be used so that we're 
we're thinking about um, making it available, even sometimes we're not sure. We can't even imagine yet what the use might be. Um, but we're taking the right steps, so that will be a long-term asset you know, for our nation. So, Dorothy, if I were to ask you where the AI adoption efforts are within federal government, do you feel warm and fuzzy and do the results of whatever adoption that has happened, do you feel encouraged to do more and also encouraged with the results that you got? Well, I can't, you know, I'm not in a good position to speak for the whole federal government, but I can say that within the National uh, Science Foundation, the the customer base is eager to adopt the um, uh, artificial intelligence and the, the emerging tools, We, um, which is really nice. I mean, you know, we're familiar with, we're, we're a very imaginative group. I mean, these, these guys are funding, uh, you know, innovations uh, that, that might come to fruition five years in the future. So my customer base is uh, extremely demanding because they feel like as soon as they can imagine something, it can be deployed on their desktop. So, you know, you know, I'm encouraged by the, the demand, by the, the focus that we have. And the thing that we get from the federal government is an incredible cross-fertilization of ideas and the communication. So Suzette mentioned the notion of communities of practice. That means that NSF doesn't have to learn it on its own. You know, we have the opportunity to talk to, I have the opportunity um, regularly to talk to all of the CIOs across the federal government so that we can rapidly share uh, uh, information and learn from each other, which is a tremendous advantage for all of us. So, Suzette, you get to see a whole wider view here, right, from the, the mm-hmm. across the federal government. What do you feel? Do you feel encouraged? And if there are any gaps or there are some lessons learned in all the efforts that have been put in so far, what are they? And John, I am incredibly encouraged. And, and as Dorothy said, part of uh, that energy comes from watching the dialogue across the chief information officers, the chief data officers, but, you know, even more exciting when we have mission-serving teams that are, you know, using an AI capability to um, do something they were never able to do before, do it faster, do it more efficiently, uh, to solve, you know, to, to come up with, you know, one of the examples at HHS that we, they were able to use data to diagnose, um, to, to link different types of characteristics and diagnose something, you know, 22% earlier. That's going to save somebody's life. One of the, you know, applications that the DOD is working on, um, forecast preventative maintenance, that's going to save you know, someone's life. The things that we're doing with coronavirus right now, you know, we're, we're looking for that same type of outcome. So I'm encouraged. Um, is there an opportunity to go faster? Absolutely. As we talked about, we have a lot of fantastic resources. We still don't have um, enough specialists, you know, in the area sometimes to do everything that agencies would like. We're still having to make choices. And we're also, uh, we have a lot of policy and uh, learning activities to still go through to make sure that we're putting the right boundaries and protocols in place to govern the use and that we're doing the right things for the things that are citizen-facing um, to explain the use. It's really easy for us to use 
weather data or financial data and be transparent with it. We have to be significantly more careful. These are some of the areas where, you know, if you look at kind of our path, we're making more progress in things that are about numbers and observable data um, that does not have a privacy element, but the things that have a privacy and individual element or an outcome that affects privilege or a service or entitlement, um, you know, we're still considering those very carefully. Let's take a quick break, listeners. We'll be right back. And Dorothy, when we come back, I'd like to build upon a quick example that Suzette shared about the weather data, which the private sector can use to make a profit. That's very good. That's one use case. But are there other ways where AI-enabled federal activities that are going on, they would impact the private sector? What are the opportunities there? So please stay tuned, listeners. We'll be right back and explore. Today, enterprise technology is both strategic and global. Each week on CTN CIO Talk Network, IT thought leaders from around the world share their experience with listeners as they discuss with Sunjog All how they are trimming costs and partnering with business to innovate and help IT become more competitive, better care for customers, and improve the corporate bottom line. If you want to keep up with IT thought leadership, listen to CTN CIO Talk Network with Sunjog All at CIO Talk Network. You are listening to CTN, CIO Talk Network, with Sunjog All. To learn more about our program, please visit CIOTalkNetwork.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back. So, Dorothy, let's talk a little bit about the federal activities that are going on, which are AI-enabled. And there could be an opportunity for the private sector to benefit from it, to be positively impacted by it. So what do you think could those be? Well, I always think of data as the foundation of all artificial intelligence inventions. Um, and, of course, you know, the, we're rich in data, and as we were just saying, and we're getting uh, much more agile at releasing that data. One of the things that um, comes to mind for me is that um, the is that that is that we are and we're also working to figure out can we uh, share even the private data? Is there way? Are there ways of us masking the private data so that people can build models on it? Um, and that kind of experimentation is important. So that people can, if, if we um, could stimulate these databases and allow uh, databases that look like the privacy data, uh, make them available to the public and to the private sector, to the public sector, then the public sector could develop tools on top of them that they could, we could then buy back from them. So um, that kind of, yeah, I know it's a little bit uh, techy, but we need to be always thinking about the combination. How can we both mask the data and provide it at the same time for the, for model building? So at the technology okay. level, that is a great example. And so Suzette, at a business level, when there are different activities going on, which are AI-enabled, so besides them using the data at a technical level, 
at an activity level, what can private sector do to to get the most benefit out of that? Well, and Sandra, I'm gonna I'm gonna kind of open up that aperture to what to the benefit of, of you know private sector. You know, Dorothy and in our other example, we talked about ways that you know data can be made available and you know, entrepreneurs and citizens with great ideas can build businesses on ways that they use that data, whether it's, you know, a, a, a new app for, you know, hiking, you know, the national park or, you know, um, some type of game, some type of um, forecast of things that are going to happen. But it also makes the government easier for citizens to interact with. And one of those examples, we were using AI to actually look at outdated regulation in a couple of agencies. And this particular, one of the particular agencies, um, in that examination, town regulation is still dealt with receiving telegraphs. We don't do telegrams anymore, right? Telegrams, you know, don't come in. But it also pointed out places where things might have been complex. And that made it hard for citizens to interact with the government. Um, you know, we have examples where we're using AI um, in examination of things that we do in the food supply. That means that citizens are going to get, you know, a higher quality food, you know, faster through a quicker supply chain. Um, lots of folks want visibility and transparency to how decisions are made and what things are going on inside government. Uh, there's been so that's a benefit. There's been a significant amount of investment in spend transparency. So meaning, you know, what are agencies spending? What are programs spending? What are they producing? Um, so that lets citizens, you know, have insight into you know how resources that they are providing, tax dollars, are being spent. And some of my favorite examples are things, um, you know, one of the projects at at, at the VA. Uh, they were able to bring together massive data sets using AI, analyze that, and in combination with high-performance compute, um, take something that used to take weeks to forecast and give um, insights to doctors for better treatment of patients. They can do that in hours now, and they can do it every can day I, instead of once a week. Um, can I add also that oh. we're... Um, I think that when we um, release information, we don't. We are not the innovators. So part of the belief here is that we're learning the federal government, and we're making it as easy for our citizens to interact with us, et cetera. And we're providing them tools like data. But the notion is that if if, if I was an innovator, I probably wouldn't be a, a federal CIO. So if I knew what the uh, hey, now. Hey, now. Come on, Dorothy. You're innovative. <laughs> if I, I'm, I'm as innovative as they come, but but I'm just saying, uh, so I'm, I live in a fantasy, but 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 the idea <laughs> is that we want those, mo- those most innovative entrepreneurs to have access to this stuff so that they can figure out what to do with it. So it's not, we're not trying, in, with, we don't have a specific intent, or at least I don't to stimulate a specific, in, a, a new invention. I just want to make things available to people who have that kind of capability. 
So that said, Dorothy, my follow-up question would be like AI itself could distill some insight from all the blobs of data that might be sitting there. Do you think that or any other use of AI would have improved the accessibility of federal data to the private sector? The use of AI, yes. Yeah, we, we are using artificial intelligence to, to, to develop algorithms that mask the, the data so that it can be um, shared more readily. Is that what you asked? Yeah, so I mean, basically, AI is being used. You could do regular business intelligence. Now you're doing AI. You've got a lot of data, which is legacy, or the new data is being created. But just because it was available in the past, but it was not readily shareable, if you will, not that there was a security reason, but it was not in a form which could be useful for the private sector. So are we, in a way, uh, improving the level of accessibility of federal data that was there for uh, private sector, and now because you're using AI, it's better now? Have you improved that whole accessibility? So let me switch it a little bit, or at least answer the question I think that you might be asking. From the federal government, we use tools, definitely. We use commercial tools like natural language processing tools to convert uh, legacy data into machine-readable format. Uh, so we certainly are using artificial intelligence in the, secure, in the practices of many of our kinds of business. Uh, uh, it, you know, so that's the opposite. I think the opposite question is we, we rely on artificial intelligence to function as a government, but we don't always create the AI tools ourselves. Okay. So now, so that's an important point that Dorothy made too. Is you know, we we have a um, critical relationship with the private sector. In many cases, we are using commercial tools and we're using the AI that's embedded in those tools um, to be more efficient, to operate at scale, um, and to move more quickly. So the, some of the things that you know we use every every day in you know, standard business are powered by AI. Not just, you know, it's not just the subset of the things that we are creating this to. Right. The federal government is part of an ecosystem. We're not um, separate from the, pri- from the private sector. And uh, I think it's really interesting because, you know, certainly when we go from, when we're not in quarantine for, uh, what do we call this, social distancing, uh, World, you know, we move from place to place. We're using the artificial intelligence that's in in uh, mapping tools and airplanes that fly themselves, and you know, many of these things that have been around that are also based on the data that we provide. Now, let's let's get to the next question, which would be for you, Suzette. Is there is government modernization that is happening, and there is a lot more to go. Are there any specific other pieces of technology besides AI in technology areas which we need to use to have an effective government modernization? Sandra, this is this is a, a, a question that the CIO Council and the technology team you know, across the government um, is always asking. Right, so you know, we've made commitments to deliver digital capabilities um, and deliver more efficiently, to deliver experiences for citizens 
that aren't paper-based and that are intuitive and feel more on par with private sector. So to do those things, we've been focusing on automation of all types. You know, Dorothy mentioned natural language processing, but image recognition, applications of business analytics and AI, machine learning. Um, we make significant investments in data. Any of your listeners are interested, it's on strategy.data.gov. Um, scalable platforms, on-demand services. Um, we've had a huge push to move to cloud technologies um, or types of technologies that can rapidly expand and contract inside the federal government and moving away from, you know, legacy applications or applications that um, confine data aren't nimble enough for the environment that we're operating in. And the one other kind of critical piece uh, and that's one of the areas where Dorothy is one of the all of government leaders is how we ensure that we're moving the workforce with that. She leads the workforce committee on the uh, federal CIO council. And what we realized when we look at adoption of some of those tools is sometimes it wasn't because we couldn't technically get it done. It's that we still had gaps in the skill set and people being comfortable with those tools and comfortable using them to push forward rather than, you know, maybe reverting back to something they knew before. And we were, in some cases, investing in new and emerging skills fast enough in our workforce. So lots of, you know, technology tools out there, rethinking of the business processes and ensuring that we're investing in the workforce, you know, at a rate that exceeds or at least is on par with um, our deployment of those new capabilities. So, Dorothy, if I were to ask you regarding all the different things that you may be doing at technology level, being the CIO and Suzette is also doing at her level, with with AI, right? So that's good. But then are the leaders and the citizens ready to embrace AI? For them, it is a piece well, of technology. They don't need to see it. They should see the results of it. Or are there certain elements right. we need to put in place to support a broader AI use? Well... I think you said it correctly, which is really we, for the most part, artificial intelligence may be embedded in, in tools that are citizen-facing without you knowing it, um, you know, just like uh, natural language processing and systems that that are voice-activated and respond to your, your voice commands. I mean, the, the, the technology that isn't a problem, isn't... I don't believe, I'm an IT person, but I don't believe technology is important. I think the question is, what problem are you trying to solve? And I know this conversation is very focused on a specific technology set of artificial intelligence, but the real question is, are we serving the, the, the taxpayer? So I think that, um, I think that, uh, you know, we're using all kinds of technologies, but we use the one that fits the problem. Uh, robotic process automation, blockchain, whatever these things are. And we use, and also the notion that technology never stands still. Artificial intelligence isn't the end. It's one of the many things that is happening now, or it's, just, it's the technology that might have the light shining on it now. One of the things I think we're learning as a, you know, very quickly is that we have to be continuously ready for change. And, I think that uh, we we were really we anticipated this years ago as a federal government in beginning our move away from 
on-premise data centers and into the cloud. As Suzette mentioned, cloud technologies, but the very important thing about cloud technologies is how agile they are and how we don't have, as a federal government, we don't have to make a big investment in a specific technology if our solution is um, an application as a service or is uh and infrastructure as a service because we can easily migrate to the next without having a significant lift. So I think that government is moving into a position where we are very, where we're agile and able to adopt, adapt to whatever technology emerges next. All right, I have just a minute left, uh, Suzette. So I'd like to get your thoughts on what we need to put in place so that AI is used in a broader manner. Well, Sanjog, again, thank you for having us. And I think we've touched on, you know, some of those things. That that is, um, but but I'll I'll simplify them. Um, we need to to kind of mature the support structure around this specific set of technologies to make both the internal teams that are developing, using, deploying AI comfortable and ensure that they can operate in a way that, as we said before, is lawful, is without bias, and is in alignment with a specific mission purpose, um, and is highly secure, but also we need to make those uh, that we're serving comfortable with the way that we're doing that. That is going to require uh, points of explainability, transparency, um, and how uh, confident and how we manage the data. And Dorothy um, noted in her last comment, one of the, 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 the crux is pointing, you know, at the right, answering the right question and continuing to be agile. So this is a, an, one of the most powerful technologies we've had the opportunity to use, um, but it's a tool for solving problems. And we're going to continue to learn, to experiment, to expand the uses, and that's going to deliver you know, great things for American citizens and efficiency for how we operate the government. So I'm going to uh, remain excited and appreciate you know, your listeners for spending some time uh, thinking about this today. On behalf of the show and our listeners, thanks so much, Suzette and Dorothy, for sharing your thoughts and insights about how the public sector is utilizing AI to run the federal government effectively and also using it to deal with this current coronavirus pandemic. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. And listeners, please like us on first, uh, Facebook, search for CTN CIO Talk Network, and be sure to follow us on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thank you again for listening to this segment on CTN. This is Sanjog, all your talk show hosts. Till next week, take care and God bless. Thank you for tuning in to CTN, CIO Talk Network, with your host, Sunjo Gall. To learn more about our program or for show archives, comments, or questions, please visit ciotalknetwork.com. Thank you again for listening. 